0: Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Setting land aside for preservation seems like a no-brainer. There's enormous pressure to develop land to satisfy growing mineral and energy needs. The problem is, indigenous people often inhabit the land targeted for preservation, and government powers use force to remove them. The publication Grist documents cases around the globe and finds historical context in the U.S. that puts preservation ahead of the lives and culture of the people who live there. We'll hear about their reporting coming up right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas at KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. President Joe Biden is back spending time with his Irish cousins Friday as part of a week-long trip to the Emerald Isle. Thursday was a full day of pomp and circumstance with Irish politicians in the Republic's capital, as Sean McPullen reports from Dublin.
2: U.S. President Joe Biden and Ireland's poet President Michael D. Higgins rang a peace bell at Oris the head of state's official residence was originally built in 1780 as a summer place for the British Viceroy in the Kingdom of Ireland. Most of Dublin city centre, including the zoo, was shut down Thursday amid tight security. There were concerns of violence by critics of the Good Friday Agreement, which deferred a united Ireland in the name of peace 25 years ago this week. The White House denied the president is anti British after a former leader of Northern Ireland's right wing Loyalist Party said President Biden hates the UK. His love for Ireland was on full display, including his entry into President Higgins' guest book, quoting an old Irish saying Your feet will bring you to where your heart is, and it's an honor to return and to come home to the home of my ancestors. For National Native News, I'm Show McPullen in Dublin.
1: Chief Standing Bear is being honored by the U.S. Postal Service. His portrait is featured on a forever stamp. The leader is well known for fighting for native rights. In 1877, the U.S. Army forcibly relocated some 700 Ponca people to Indian Territory, what's now Oklahoma, after the federal government took the tribe's homeland in an area that's now in northeastern Nebraska. When trying to return home, Standing Bear, along with 29 other Ponca people, were arrested. Standing Bear sued the federal government for his freedom in a landmark civil rights case, which he won. A ceremony will be held in Lincoln, Nebraska on May 12th to roll out the stamp. Frida Dan's four kids are all grown up, but she continues to organize an Alaska native language spelling bee every year in Anchorage, which now includes Yupik and Inupiat language speakers. Dan, who is Yupik, grew up in the western Alaska village of Stebbins. She now lives in Anchorage where she started the spelling bee when her kids were small to help them keep their connection to their language. After 12 years, with one year off for the pandemic, Dan is holding her 11th statewide spelling bee in Anchorage. She says it's the students who keep her going.
3: They do catch their exuberance and happiness that they accomplished
1: something. Before students get to the competition, they have a lot of work to do. They're given a long list of words to learn, 26 pages for Yupik spellers and 14 for Anupiak.
3: It includes the word with its definition, a sample of its usage, and a lot of them have difficulty with
1: Q and K and R and G. Dan says those letters represent different sounds than in English. Understanding those spelling conventions, she says, also helps students learn to read in their native language and improve their vocabulary. Four schools are taking part in the Yupik spelling bee, Nunam Iqua on the Bering Seas coast, as well as two Kuskokwim River communities, Akiak and Akiachuk. Brevig Mission, which is north of Nome, is the only Inupiaq school in this year's competition. The statewide spelling bee will be held at the Central Lutheran Church in downtown Anchorage on Saturday. Indigenous chef Sean Sherman has made Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people in the world for 2023. Sherman, Oglala Lakota, is a leader in the movement to revitalize indigenous food systems and is also a founder of the nonprofit North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. I'm Jill Freitas.
4: NEWS IS PRODUCED BY KALANAK BROADCAST CORPORATION, WITH FUNDING BY THE CORPORATION FOR PUBLIC BROADCASTING. SUPPORT BY THE AMERICAN INDIAN HIGHER EDUCATION CONSORTIUM, WORKING TO ENSURE TRIBAL COLLEGES AND UNIVERSITIES ARE INCLUDED IN OUR HIGHER EDUCATION SYSTEM. INFORMATION ON 37 TRIBAL COLLEGES AND UNIVERSITIES AT AIHEC.ORG. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at aarp.org.
0: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The world's go-to method for preserving land is to fence off large areas and eliminate its inhabitants. Critics dub this process Fortress Conservation, and throughout history it has removed Indigenous people from their land. The nonprofit news organization GRIST is examining the adverse effects and history of fortress conservation from an Indigenous perspective in a series of articles. It comes as world leaders are embarking on the most ambitious conservation goal in history, to preserve 30% of the Earth's land and oceans by the year 2030. Today on our show, we'll talk with journalists from Grist about their reporting. As always, we look forward to listener comments and questions. What's the trade-off between colonial conservation methods and indigenous homelands? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848 or leave a comment on our social media, our Twitter handle, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Helsinki, Finland, via Zoom, is Tristan Atone. He is the editor at large at Grist. He is Kiowa. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Tristan.
5: Thanks for having me again.
0: Joining us from Los Angeles, California, is Blanca Begert. She is an environmental journalist and Grist contributor. Blanca, welcome to the show.
3: Hi. Thanks for having me
0: and joining us from pittsburgh pennsylvania is maria Parazzo rose she is a spatial data analyst at grist maria welcome to you as well
6: hi happy to be here
0: tristan let's start with you and this whole concept of fortress conservation and i have to admit these are words i had never heard used together until earlier this month when we began planning this show what's the origin of the term
5: yeah, uh, good question about where the origin of the term is. Um, um but I I, uh, I can't say where who coined it initially. But it's been something that continues to come up um, around the world, especially with uh, human rights organizations and uh, human rights experts. Um, and again, the, the the idea of fortress conservation is this is this notion that uh, an area of rich biodiversity, um, to protect it well, it needs to be free of all human presence. Um, so the idea that, that land and territories can be free of people um, and therefore can be protected better because nobody's there to, to mess around with it, basically. Um, as we know, as indigenous people, this is not how the world works. Uh, but uh, that model of fortress conservation is, has some very deep Colonial roots um, and um, is one that that's utilized in a lot of uh, in conservation efforts around the world.
0: What led Grist to tackle this
5: topic? Well, this is something that we uh, had really seen popping up a lot, uh, as I said, with uh, with indigenous communities and and experts um, around the globe. So uh, we regularly now cover the. United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, which is also happening next week. Uh, we were there last year, and we we're hearing quite a bit uh, about this topic from folks that attended um, uh, the sessions to, to talk about issues in their communities. It's something that's come up in a number of reports um, from uh, human rights organizations around the world. Uh, more or less, it just we have been noticing over the last year or so that um, there are a lot of threads and communications and conversations around this topic. And the more that we started to look into this, the more we saw that there was a larger pattern, um, that these weren't isolated incidents that seemed to be happening in, in different parts of the planet. Uh, this seemed to be more of, a, 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 to some degree, a systematic sort of effort um, in terms of how to conserve the planet and um, where that was clashing with indigenous
1: communities.
0: Well, that's what I've really learned uh, is that there are examples of fortress conservation happening all over the world, impacting indigenous populations globally. So how did you decide which specific stories to tell?
5: (laughs) Well, yeah, um, we Basically, it's where people initially were starting to call us back from, honestly. Um, that, that, that sounds a little bit flippant. I don't, I don't mean that to, uh, uh, to, to sound silly, but um, because this is happening on every corner of the planet, um, to some degree, we have taken the approach of uh, you know, metaphorically throwing a dart. Um, th- this is literally in the US, Canada, Central America, Africa, Asia. We are seeing this everywhere. Um, so uh, some of our focuses have really come from uh, more or less our ability to connect with communities and start working uh, to report out stories um, uh, where, where folks are living. So we've had a lot of coverage, for instance, um, in uh, Tanzania with uh, the Maasai there um, and the situations they've been going through our reporter, Joseph Lee. Um, who's really led coverage on that area has been um, a, a really, really great in terms of working with them and, and reporting um, on their issues. Um, so, you know, the, to some degree, it's who's calling us back, where can we get access, and, um, you know, where, where can we have time to actually dig into the stories? Because we, we are fully very, very, very aware of being sort of parachute reporters in this situation. Um, obviously, I think as coming at, at this with an indigenous perspective is very helpful, but we are still keenly aware that we are um, outsiders and guests in communities. So, um, you know, uh, making contacts and then being able to spend time is really sort of the name of the game with this series of stories.
0: Well, it sounds like there's certainly a, a level of trust that needs to be established uh, with some of these communities and uh, some of these stories that are shared. And I also have learned that part of the reporting you're doing uh, features a comic, a really illustri- well-illustrated, very colorful comic by a Native artist and activist by the name of Gord Hill. What led you folks to to pursue that idea, to, to illustrate some of these ideas through comics?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it is just in terms of thinking about what journalism is and can be, is that we're, we're really trying to make sure that readers and audiences understand the material that we're reporting on um, and access the material in ways that they feel comfortable or ways that um you know make people think differently about uh about the information i mean for i'm not i don't necessarily think that we're doing a long series on fortress conservation is going to be as effective if it's just you know eight 12 page stories it's you know Mm -hmm. somebody if if we're expecting our readers to like read an entire book (laughs) um in order to like engage with this topic i I don't think that's the best use of readers time so for for this comic for instance we've worked with artist uh gord hill um i became aware of his work through his 500 years of uh resistance comic book and his anti-capitalist resistance comic book i'm I'm sure a lot of readers or listeners are familiar with some of his work um but uh He seemed, you know, his work is really, really great at being able to um, explain big, complicated topics um, and pair it with just visually gorgeous um, uh, art. And we just felt like if we were going to really get people into the idea of what protected areas, fortress conservation, 30 by 30, you know, united, like there's all of these big ideas that you really need to be able to wrap your head around um mm-hmm. we figured one of the best ways to do that was through a comic it's easy to digest it's easy to engage with there's a lot to be able to um to spend time with there um and doesn't feel as taxing as being like okay well you know here's your here's your 15 page story and you're gonna learn <laughs> everything there is about fortress conservation it just I, I just don't think that's how um i don't absorb information like that and i don't think a lot of the, uh, readers do So we want to make sure that we're trying to meet readers in all of the places that they may be. um, Right.
0: And along those lines, I think a lot of times when people think of a comic, they think of maybe younger readers, but uh, the comics are are beautifully illustrated. Uh, They're very powerful, but they also deal with some very, very um, mature themes with regard to, to violence and oppression. And I want to ask, I mean, you know, this comic, but even some of the other stories that are being told Who's the target audience in terms of age uh, for this type of material, Tristan?
5: Well, we're, we're, we are trying to reach a fairly broad age, but, I, you know, I, I generally like to think of readers that I really want to have conversations with between more or less the ages of, you know, 15 and 45, basically, or, or up from there. But, you know, that is the target audience that I, I'm really trying to think of because when, you know, ultimately we are hoping that the reporting that we are doing sparks people to have more intense conversations, really uh, make some uh, some difficult decisions, and really start thinking about what these models of conservation um, are doing and how they can be changed. And I want to make sure that we're really having that conversation with folks um, that are uh, young, inspired, engaged, and ready to have those conversations, and ultimately, hopefully, um, take that information to make real changes and... and um, really think about what a better future can look like.
0: Young, inspired, and engaged. Those are definitely <laughs> the three three good uh, uh, bullet points to, to really touch on. And we're going to have to take a break here in about another minute and a half. But, you know, this all starts with this story uh, about Yosemite National Park in present-day California. And it, it really challenges the conventional wisdom about one of America's favorite natural public landscapes. Can you give us a little bit of the history of Yosemite there before we have to go to break? Uh,
5: Yeah, quite briefly. uh, Yosemite National Park in California is one of the first national parks uh, created uh, created in 1864 by uh, President Lincoln. Um, And more or less in order to make it a national park, uh, advocates Um, uh, more or less pushed for the removal of uh, indigenous people, specifically the Miwoks from the area. Um, And those battles and conflicts with Miwoks uh, continued all the way into uh, the 1900s and 1960s. So um, it's a long history of trying to remove people from their traditional homelands, the homelands that they have caretaken for generations um, in order to preserve it. Um, in order to think of those people as threats to the, uh, to the area and not as um, complementary and um, as our own territories that they have kept in that shape for that long.
0: Fortress conservation, if this is a term that is new to you, uh, you're going to enjoy this show because we're learning all about it and its impacts here with our guest today. Give us a call with questions or comments, 1-800-996-2848. This is Sean Spruce, host of Native America Calling. You can listen in every weekday to hear the only national call-in show from a Native American perspective. We explore topics that range from traditional cultural practices to -to up-to-the-minute news that affects every American. We hope you can join us for the next Native America Calling.
1: Caché. (laughs) If you have a lot of people who are not going to be a little bit more than a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of of Medicare of
0: Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We are speaking with journalists from the news organization, Grist. They're publishing new series, a new series of stories about issues related to fortress conservation. And if you'd like to join today's conversation, call 1-800-996-2848. Tell us how federal conservation tactics impact your tribal community. That number again, 1-800-996-2848, or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. One of our guests is uh, on the line here, Tristan Autone. And Tristan, before break, you, you gave us a, a very brief kind of a Cliff Notes version of, of the history of Yosemite National Park. And you talked about Abraham Lincoln and him having designated as the park. And another president that played a, a big role uh, in the early days of these national parks and protecting uh, public lands was Teddy Roosevelt. And, you know, he's a very polarizing figure in history. Uh, People either kind of love him or they hate him. But one of the accomplishments of of Roosevelt has always been, uh, you know, that he was set aside more than 2 million acres of public protected lands. And it led to the creation of the National Park Service. And people have always thought of that as being a really good thing. But here, listening to you today and learning about these stories, I'm not so sure if uh, that was such a cool thing.
5: Yeah, it's, it's very uncool. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I think when we are thinking about this series of stories and protected areas and fortress conservation, it, it really does continue to align uh, with work uh, that really critically examines the history of the United States and other countries. So in terms of, uh, you know, Roosevelt setting aside Uh, land for preservation? Sure, it it sounds great, but it only sounds great if um, you're more or less sort of separating the land and the action from the historical context. of who. If your
0: lands aren't being set aside, right? (laughs) That's when it sounds really great.
5: Like, you know, like, you know, if I, I, if I find a car and I say, well, well, this is a great car, it's mine now. And I'm going to make sure I keep it in really good shape and that it'll run forever. You know, it sounds really nice, but if I just stole your car and forgot to tell anybody it was yours, (laughs) like it's, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of forgetting a really major part of, Of the historical context of those lands. And again, uh, when we're thinking about uh, lands and we're thinking about um, indigenous peoples as caretakers of those lands, um, you know, I mean, throughout almost the entire human history, land has been, um, you know, like humans have shaped and sustained landscapes. I mean, it's, you know, like there's so much science even around us, you know, the last 12,000 years of like that indigenous communities have like cared for their territories and have sustained them for generations. Um, you know, if you, if you don't think about that, then sure, maybe fortress conservation makes sense to you. But the reason that, you know, Yosemite National Park, the reason that Yellowstone are the pristine, beautiful areas that they are is because people cared for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Tristan, uh, one of the stories is uh, about the Sami. Can you tell us a little bit more about that story? It was very, very, very powerful.
5: Yeah. So this story um, is coming out on on Tuesday here, and what we're we're looking at is about uh, the Sami, and uh, specifically the Sami in northern Sweden, um, and their relationship with an area called the Laponian area, which is a UNESCO World Heritage site. Um, basically. Uh, there is a, an iron mine that has been proposed that's about 20 miles south of that, uh, that UNESCO World Heritage Site. And uh, the Sami are basically saying that um, if the mine goes through, the UNESCO World Heritage Site may not exist anymore. And, and the reason for that um, is that when Sweden applied for UNESCO World Heritage Site status, they applied for two reasons. The first was um, that it's an absolutely gorgeous area, natural beauty. But the second was because it's a cultural area that is used by traditional Sami reindeer herders. So if the mine goes through, the Sami argue that um, it will cut off reindeer uh, herding routes into that Laponian area, that UNESCO site. And basically if the Sami cannot get there anymore and cannot continue to practice their culture in the site, then more or less the UNESCO site shouldn't exist anymore, and that's what the story is really looking at is, is looking at um, that relationship with that particular site and sort of the you know the 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 conflict around that particular uh, area in in northern Sweden, but also expanding a little bit more to look at um, tensions around concerns where UNESCO's treatment and inclusion of indigenous communities. Um, has really come up a number of times and specifically worth looking at some of the really extreme areas like Thailand and Tanzania, where uh, both violent evictions um, and outright killings um, have really defined the relationships between uh, indigenous peoples, governments and, um, and UNESCO, which is a United Nations agency.
0: Well, tell us more, yeah, about UNESCO and why are they responsible for policing things like where a mine should be located? I mean, shouldn't that be more up to to the country where that mine is located?
5: Well, you're absolutely right. Um, It it, it isn't up to UNESCO to police that, but it is up to UNESCO to protect the areas that they've inscribed in their World Heritage List. Um, You know, I mean, there's a lot of, for for folks that that need an update, like a UNESCO site. Um, is a place like uh, the, the pyramids in Egypt, or the Taj Mahal, or, or Chichen Itza, even even Taos Pueblo, right? Like these are all UNESCO sites, and more or less those UNESCO sites are United Nations protected areas. So it's not up to UNESCO to say whether or not a mine can go in, but it is up to UNESCO to say is this site protected um, when there are there's a mine, or when a new bridge is built through there, or new roads. You know, it is their job to protect that area. Um, And I think the thing that the Sami are really trying to get across and and what we're thinking about in this story is that if you're going to actually protect an area like the Laponian area, you can't just put a border around it and expect that um, it will be safe. You have to really expand your thinking about what the ecosystem and biodiversity and the environment. Um, and really pro- apply what, you know, uh, agencies nowadays call traditional ecological knowledge, you know, and really apply that and think about, um, you know, what does the entire ecosystem, like, how is it interacting? How is it working together? Um, and I think with the, the site in, in Sweden, it's a really good example of people um, and, and reindeer, this sort of human coupled migration that happens, that's happened for, forever, um, mm-hmm. you know, back and forth through this area um, that, uh, that, that really illustrates how the environment is connected, um, in ways that transcend, um, borders.
0: UNESCO has oversight over the pyramids in Egypt. You mentioned also Taos Pueblo. Now that I, I find very interesting here, a, a sovereign tribal nation located within the borders of the United States. Uh, does Taos Pueblo have any say, or do they Authorized UNESCO to have this oversight. What's the relationship there between the Pueblo of Taos and UNESCO?
5: Yeah, um, from my understanding, I mean it was something that Taos Pueblo actually asked for. Um, okay. So it's actually one of the really good examples of where UNESCO has worked with um, indigenous communities and indigenous peoples. Um, you know, there there are other sites around the world in which that's happened a lot in, in Australia, for instance, going on right now too. Um, so there are some really good examples of when the agency is working with an indigenous community. And Taos Pueblo is one of those examples where, um, you know, the Pueblo went to UNESCO and um, and worked with the agency to make sure that the area would be a protected area.
0: Well, let's uh, bring Blanca into the conversation now. Again, Blanca Begert, she's an environmental journalist and Grist contributor. Blanca, you have an upcoming story that takes a detailed look at a place in Peru. What drew you to that location?
3: So, um, I, the story that I have coming out next week is about um, a protected area in the Amazonian Department of Ucayali in Peru, and I had uh, previously in 2019 been in the Amazon in a different department um, doing research for my uh, master's degree on um, another quite high-profile um, national protected area where there was a lot of local conflict on the ground around um Local people living in the park and indigenous communities around the border of the park. Um, and so this was an, an area that I had um, was really interested in and had already had some experience covering and uh, received some funding to go back and look specifically at how another protected area um, in the Peruvian Amazon was also impacting the the lives of um, indigenous peoples that had lived in that area for for many generations. Um, And I guess what particularly drew me to this specific case was sort of um, hearing about the response of the communities that have have lived in that are living in the park and how they've really mounted um, quite a a successful resistance in some ways to um, the way that the park was established and uh, restricting their livelihoods.
0: Now, what are some of the main factors that are are impacting this area where this park has been created and has displaced uh, some indigenous populations?
3: Yeah, so um, this this regional protected area in Ucayali, um, it was established in twenty ten, um, sort of with the goal of many conservation areas of protecting the wetland ecosystem from overfishing and illegal logging, but um, It overlapped six indigenous Shipibo territories, and also a few other towns of um, smallholder farmers who had migrated to the area. And um, many of the people who who live there and the the people in the Shipibo communities um, say that it was really, the government really didn't follow the uh, process of free prior and informed consent as established in international law that Peru has signed on to. Um, And so, you know, they say that it was established illegally and um, that it has really put a lot of restrictions on their livelihoods. So, they're only allowed to fish um, and farm and, you know, cut down trees for their own subsistence, but not to sell, which was prior their only way of making money. Um, And then, you know, the the park has some alternative livelihood development programs that, um, you know, they're trying to sell native fruits and do traditional crafts, but none of that has really been um, like a sufficient replacement income and there's also a lot of questions that people there have about the the money that's coming into the park for, um, from the regional government and also USAID um, you know where that's going because the area has you know increasingly even since it's been established as a protected area just been a, a focal point for land trafficking um, and timber poaching and commercial fishing in, in these indigenous communities, these Shipibo territories um, so those are like some of the, the issues that they're they've contended with there.
0: Now, is it true that the area has also been targeted by cocaine threats?
3: Yes, that as well. And yeah, and from before the, the protected area was established. And after there's been um, invasions of uh, cocaine farmers in, in the protected area and in the specific uh, territories with, within it as well. Um, and the, yeah, the state has sort of like a, a eradication program for that to get from, um, rid of those farms but it hasn't really been able to you know like really make a dent in it
0: yeah it's just fascinating now I know you were in Peru for about a week and a half uh last October what were some of the big challenges that you encountered uh when you put these stories together Blanca
3: yeah I mean um I think sort of to Tristan's point that he was making a bit earlier about parachute reporting I mean I think any reporting where you go drop in for a week or two in a uh, community and culture and political dynamic that you know you're not a part of. I'm um, a white Peruvian American person. I grew up in the U.S. I've done research and reporting in the Amazon on these issues before, but this was definitely my first time visiting these communities. Um, so yeah, I think the challenge was just making sure to be really aware of that and really clear about why I was there, and you know talk to a lot of people and share how I was reading things with the community to make sure I was understanding their perspectives as best I could um, as I sort of told this story. And then also, you know, doing research on, you know, talking to government people too and reading the documents that have come out over the years and all that to to kind of get the, the most complete picture I could.
0: So here again, that uh, establishment of trust just sounds so critical to get these stories right. And it sounds like you... You know, we're in constant communication with these folks, and, and you kind of bounced ideas off them. But what else did you have to do to establish enough trust, Banca, that they were willing to share so much with you?
3: Um, well, I think, I mean, based on the some of the, the previous reporting I had done with, um, with indigenous communities in the Amazon, I had contacts who were able to, with, like, different, um, you know, groups that work with them and advocacy organizations were able to put me in touch with these communities. So I think coming through them was helpful because they, like, you know, it was through people that they had worked with and trusted. And then, um, yeah, I think also just, um, yeah, just being, being, again, like, really clear. And, And I think, like, this is a story that the, the community, the Shipibo communities there really want to get out there. You know, they've, like, dealt with years, um, you know, over a decade of exclusionary conservation and it's been locally reported and they've, um, you know, submitted many formal documents and but, you know, right before I went, a few months before that, they had kind of done like a peaceful demonstration but it was really uh, like an action to take over the park and they um, kicked out the administration and have sort of been monitoring it and guarding the entrance of it themselves. So they're sort of at like a critical point and I think um, they, they people that I talked to there were pretty eager for like the word about what they're doing um, to get out there.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's, what I find also so fascinating is that, you know, for years, we keep hearing about how at risk uh, the Amazon territory is and how there's just continued encroachment on those lands. And yet now here is an attempt to to maybe shore up some of that that land loss and protect some of these lands. But at the same time, uh, it has really negative ramifications on, on these individuals in Peru. And, and now we're learning similar types of examples of this forest or fortress conservation in other parts of the world. Uh, I, I wanna go back to Tristan briefly. And Tristan, I just wanna ask you before we go to our next break here, are, are there any examples of where fortress conservation has actually worked well? Because I mean, like we said at the beginning of the show, it, it does come from—I would hope—a place of of good intent.
5: I mean, I guess it depends on uh, on your definition of of good. I would argue that we haven't seen anything uh, because at all fortress conservation inherently implies that it comes with a cost of expelling people or removing people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think I, I think there is just one point in the conversation for listeners here to to consider is that. We are talking about, um, especially in the context of pushing for more protected areas around the world over the next seven years, right? This is the global goal to fight climate change, to make sure that more biodiversity is protected. You know uh, that that we don't see mass extinction. That you know all of these. Th- this is the one of the reasons why this is happening. And the one thing I think that I can say is that we have not talked to anybody who is against protecting areas or against protecting biodiversity it's the way that people do it the way so it's done. you know yeah so fortress conservation is a very extreme example of how you protect biodiversity but you know i mean we we are really we're we're very clear that there's this rapidly expanding body of science that shows that working with indigenous communities can really accelerate conservation efforts so um, you know, there was a story that uh, right. we did a few Tristan, weeks ago I'm sorry, we
0: are going to have to take another break here, but uh, we'll hear about that story you want to share when we come back.
4: Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers.
0: You're listening to Native America Calling. Still time to join our conversation about nature conservation with reporters from Grist. The number to join is 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE, and... Before we went to break, we were listening to Tristan Autone, and he was talking about how uh, folks do agree on the importance of land conservation. It's just all in the approach and how you go about achieving that goal. So, uh, Tristan, I'm sorry we had to go to a quick break there, but please continue what you were saying.
5: Oh, no worries. Um, yeah, I was just saying that, that we haven't talked to anybody who's uh, been opposed to uh, protecting biodiversity or protecting areas. But as you said, it's the way that people do it. Um, you know, I, there's this, you know, like just the, the world's healthiest forests uh, um, often are on protected indigenous lands. Um, you know, we, we've seen the science around this. We've seen the science around, you know, that, that mobile pastoralists like the Sami, like Maasai in, in Tanzania, um, offer huge benefits to, uh, to landscapes, uh, you know, like preserving soil fertility or maximizing even genetic diversity. Um, you know, we've seen even in, in, uh, um, in parts of the Amazon that where, where indigenous territories are legally recognized, that there is a, a increased reforestation, right? So what we keep finding and what we keep seeing is that really formal recognition of indigenous territories and rights creates legal pathways to stopping um, to stopping the climate crisis, to stopping uh, development of extractive industries. Um, you know, that, that there are pathways in which uh, there, is a, there is a path in which the world could work very closely with indigenous communities around the world um, uh, to really accelerate the process of, of stopping the climate crisis. Uh, the problem and the reason that why we're reporting is that it seems to us, that there are not a lot of governments or um, or organizations that want to do that, and uh, you know, we have seven years more or less as a planet to hit our goal of of preserving thirty percent of the planet uh, planet surface for in protected areas. Uh, we're okay. at uh, about seventeen percent. Um, that's not a lot of time to do that.
0: Seventeen. So we're only halfway there, just a little over halfway there. Seven years to do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Let's go ahead and bring in our third guest, uh, Maria Perrazzo-Rose. Again, she is a spatial data analyst at Grist. Maria, hello. Uh, Thank you for your patience. And uh, can you start off, please explain, what exactly is a spatial data analyst journalist?
6: (laughs) Good question. (laughs) Uh, I wonder sometimes myself. (laughs) I think of it as using maps, uh, looking at data that is, geographically based, and putting that together in a way to identify stories and convey information.
0: All right, I like that. How were you able to connect uh, data reporting to fortress conservation then?
6: Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of information that exists out there uh, on how these protected areas are managed, uh, even if it's not necessarily very successfully. But there's one data set in particular uh, that the IUCN manages called the protected planet dataset. And um, it it's a really big set of information that nations all around the world will submit their information to, and then IUCN sort of collates it and puts it together. And looking into it, even a little bit more, uh, looking into that in- information, that structure, I guess, that exists behind how we track and follow uh, protected areas, I think, you know, can lead to a lot of questions pretty quickly based on the information that's there.
0: Okay. Well, tell us about the stories that you've been working on recently.
6: Sure. Well, uh, one of the stories that I'm working on is about Quito Paquito, which is a, an indigenous sacred area in uh, Arizona, an organ pipe cactus national monument. And with that story, I've been trying to, which comes out at the end of April, beginning of May. With that story, I've been trying to sort of track how protected areas are identified, established, maintained. And the interesting thing about that specific area is that it's right next to the border. And so it has a really long history of how, Tribal nations in the area, the Tohono O'odham Nation and other O'odham other Nation uh, tribes, have been relating to that land, um, and and I think there there are a few things that are coming out from there that have been interesting to me. One is considering how considering this idea of conservation, uh, especially when it's the sacred site and how different people relate to it. Um, the spring itself was actually a marsh uh, when the Tohono O'odham Nation and other O'odham Nation people were in the area and then when it was sort of absorbed into the national park system um, by force the park system actually dug out a pond where the spring was changing the landscape and uh, from that stemming from that initial action there have been a lot of environmental health issues with the springs the springs kind of drying up and Um, the flora and fauna in the area kind of degrading, I guess. But to me, that initial change itself reflects how we view conservation differently. In that era of establishing parks, a lot of the emphasis was on the idea of nature as an aesthetic thing to behold. You kind of sit and you look at this pond um, contemplatively and you appreciate nature. Whereas uh, in you know, when it was managed by the by the Autumn Nations, it was a thriving place that had orchards and different animals and was really an oasis in the desert. Um, yeah.
3: Mm.
0: Yeah, really shocking to hear that. to just uh, completely change the landscape and to the detriment of, of the Tauna Autumn people that live there. We've got a caller on the line, Chanupa, Pine Ridge, South Dakota, listening on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa.
7: Can you hear me?
0: Loud and clear. Hello? Yeah, hey. brother, we hear you.
7: Uh, this, this is going out to uh, Mariah and Blanca. Sisters, I want to share something real fast with you guys because what you're doing by, you know, protecting these areas and kind of, you know, expressing more of your open gratitude, okay, about, you know, getting the rights from our people. One of the things that has never been contested and has never been tested in the eyes of the beholders is that if you take this approach by implementing the land bases, okay, you can protect them when that consent is aimed at the people trying to desecrate them. Take for instance, like up here in the Black Hills, I'd be doing that as an individual. I'm using that term not that I like I'm a white man because the white man always says I, I, I took that t- attempt to cut free firewood in our sacred Black Hills because it is our right, okay? Makoche that is our land. So by implementing that understanding, I think there's language in what they call the Northwest Ordinance of 1780-something. But if you can reflect back to that, Mariah and uh, Blanca, you will also see that the evils of mankind will always deprive you. me that opportunity because the land, regardless if anyone has a fault with it, it belongs to we, the two-legged, and the four-legged. And back to you all, Sean, and thank you for having me
0: on. You bet, Chanupa. Thank you for calling in with those insights as well. And, Maria, so uh, Chanupa raises some interesting points here. You know, he mentions the Black Hills, a sacred area, but uh, as, as a Lakota man, he can go up there and chop wood if he needs to. So... Uh, certainly, and I, I think that kind of is at the heart of, of what this whole concept of fortress conservation is—that uh, these lands, uh, there are certain people that do have a claim to these lands, even if they do need to be protected, even if they do need to be conserved. Am I am I interpreting that okay, Maria?
6: Yeah, no, I think that's that's key. I think being able to access uh, for Indigenous peoples to be able to access those sites and protected areas is really important. Um, And maybe I can draw on some of that sort of data that I've been looking at. Um, I think the interesting thing about these protected area systems is that they don't necessarily look like what we might imagine. Tristan mentioned earlier that uh, protected areas, we might think of sort of this idea of untouched wilderness. Uh, But when you actually look at like the IUCN categories for what kind of protected area uh, a place might be, only 7% are about uh, that fall only 7% fall into that category of sort of undisturbed wilderness that has little to no presence of humans. More than a third of protected areas are actually designed to protect a specific species. And so that does involve a lot of human interaction. I think the idea reflected there that being separate from wilderness uh is wrong i mean i don't know that distinction alone strikes me as a point to bring indigenous communities into managing which you know goes to another interesting sort of data point which is just for protected areas um, for the government types which would be the entities responsible for making decisions on how a protected area is managed uh roughly 68 percent of protected areas are or are, have a federal or national government type and about 0.28 percent have are have Indigenous peoples as their governing type.
0: Okay, Block. I'd like to uh, allow you a chance to respond as well. Do you, at traveling, traveled to Peru and, and some of the other stories that you've worked on. Have you heard similar comments uh, before from what we just heard from our caller Chanupa in South Dakota with regard to Indigenous people and, and their rights to the land?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think what it made me. In terms of, so I think like there's a lot of, um, in Peru, like the law recognizes um, indigenous people's rights to access and live on their customary lands. And I think something that I've seen a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of calls for conservation to allow this and a lot of, Kind of, especially in more recent decades, like conservation models have emerged that are um, purportedly accounting for uh, indigenous land rights and traditional access and, um, like, you know, communal reserves or co management models. Um, and I think, you know, that's great. I think something that has come up in my reporting is how a lot of times, you know, these even when a a protected area isn't necessarily like fortress conservation in the sense that it's completely like evicting and completely walling off access there still can be a lot of tension around um, who can kind of control or make decisions about the area so there might be a lot of language in a management plan for example about you know respecting customary rights but when it comes down to who kind of can access the funding to do projects in the area, or um, who can really make decisions over what's going to be prioritized? It still ends up not being the uh, traditional stewards and the indigenous peoples that live there, but somehow kind of that gets captured um, by the you know administrators or the government or Western NGOs. So um, I think yeah, it's really it's really important for conservation to um, you know respect those rights. Uh, in both language and and in actual practice.
0: Okay. Maria, back to you. Uh, it just sounds like in so many examples, this uh, fortress conservation is just not working right. So what are some alternatives? What are some long-term solutions so that these lands that apparently so many people agree need to be conserved, it's just how to go about doing it?
6: Yeah. Um, I think Blanca sort of spoke to one of the things that's important to consider, which is this idea of co-management. Uh, And there are other systems that have that baked into their structure a little bit more. There's a UNESCO program called the UNESCO Man and the Biosphere Program. And in that structure, um, one, it has a reporting mechanism, which is a part of it. And that alone, having to write a report to update the status of the health of a protected area um, is key and I think creates an accountability process. Uh, And also, again, like really part of their mandate prioritizes working with Indigenous communities. Another thing to consider is where we pick these protected areas. I think often we imagine sort of lush jungles and forests, but of course there's key biodiversity areas that are all around the world. They exist in deserts, um, they exist in, you know, forests that aren't necessarily the Amazon. And within that also thinking about the size of protected areas. um, For example, I think the US has uh, the most protected areas by number, but the average size of a protected area in the country is about 40 square kilometers, or 15 square miles. And that's small. And so, you know, animals in that in those spaces don't really have the room that they might need to be healthy, thriving species. And so thinking about corridors that connect bigger protected areas could also be an important way to ensure health of species. But again, there's there's all different ways that areas need to be protected beyond just species, beyond just ecosystems, whether it's considering preventing further development or converting areas to wilderness. Um, there's a lot of different ways protection looks.
0: Thanks, Maria. Tristan, uh, we're going to have to wrap up the show here in about another minute, but how can our listeners read and access these stories that are are currently being published through Grist? Uh,
5: You can always go to our website, grist.org, G-R-I-S-T dot org. Um, You'll be able to find uh, our series running on there. Our Indigenous Affairs desk has a vertical there where you can plug into that series as well as any of our um stories that we have running we're uh one of the we are as far as we know the the only indigenous affairs desk uh that uh, specializes in environment and climate uh so we um that is our entire focus and we have a lot of stuff there so it's a good place to plug in and you can reach us there also Uh, we would love to talk to people about other stories around this topic because there's so much to be covering
0: Well, we are now out of time and I'd like to thank our guests for their time today, Tristan Atone, Blanca Begert, and Maria Purrazzo-Rose for what's been a thought-provoking conversation on the impacts of fortress conservation. Join us again next week for more topics and news from a native perspective. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our senior producer is Andy Murphy. Sol Traverso is our associate producer. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPoland is the digital producer, Nola Daves-Moses is the distribution director, and Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kewanek Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm host Sean Spruce. Have a safe weekend.
4: The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the Act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native-made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at one 888 Art Fake, support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected, and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at a-i-h-e-c dot org. Native America Calling is
0: produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.